Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. Sometimes, uh, not very often, but sometimes I wake up in the morning and feel that I could take on the world. Yeah, somebody's laughing. (laughs) There we are. It wasn't meant to be a comedy moment, but uh, (laughs) Julia's lost it. You can just get it together, Julia, and I'll carry on and say, what usually happens, and this might help you to get it together, is that I feel vulnerable and very small. Uh, Recently, I felt very weak through illness. At times, I could hardly stand up, never mind take on the world. In the past, I've, I felt very small when uh, skiing in the Alps, uh, seeing that vast mountain range pan out before me, I, I realized just how puny I am. Maybe you've had that kind of experience. And then there have been times in my life when I have been really scared and utterly helpless. I realized that I cannot defeat the foe in front of me, never mind take on the whole world. Now, I know which which I'd rather feel. I'd much prefer to wake up every day feeling ready to take on the world. But fascinatingly, as I've read today's Bible passage over this last week or so, 
I'm beginning to wonder if that's really a very good place to be. You know, that idea that I, I can conquer the world. In our Bible passage today, we see something of the wickedness of evil and how utterly helpless we are when confronted by the raw power of evil in this world. If you were here last week, you'll recall how we saw Jesus and the glory of Jesus as he and his three disciples were up a mountain. At the beginning of chapter 9, there is Jesus in his dazzling brilliance, reflecting his purity, his holiness, and his glory. This week, Jesus and the three disciples that went with him uh, come down from the mountain, and those three disciples and Jesus are immediately, well, the three disciples are immediately brought back down to earth again. Instantly, they are confronted by the harsh realities of life in a fallen world. But here's the thing to hang on to this morning. Right there in the mess and wickedness of the world, the glory of Christ still shines extraordinarily brightly. Look first with me then at the first point on the handout, the situation confronted by evil, uh, verses 14 uh, to 18. Verse 14, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. After the most remarkable mountaintop experience, the disciples walk into a, a row. As we read on, we'll see that they were immediately confronted by the problems of living in a world of evil and the frustration of, of devastating pain and suffering. After such a glorious experience up the mountain, this really did bring the disciples back down to earth with a bump. It's happened to me, I guess it's happened to you too. Not that I've been up a mountain and literally seen the glory of God, but I can tell you of times when I've had the most uplifting of spiritual experiences that have been brought to a shuddering halt by the brokenness of this world. Have you felt that? A few years back, I attended a most inspiring two-day conference, and once again, get ready for it, Julia, I was ready to take on the world. And then just before I came back to Sheffield, I had a telephone call from the office telling me about a death, and it was a really tragic death. It's not always that dramatic. I can think of wonderful times of prayer that have been followed by me opening an, e an angry email from someone. I can recall marvelous times here in this church praising God only to arrive home and find myself having to sort out a family squabble. From spiritual highs, we can so quickly be brought low because of the the sadness and messiness of living in a broken world. And I guess that sense of disappointment of being brought back down to earth hit the three disciples hard as, verse 14, the other disciples, some teachers of the law and a crowd of people were bickering. One minute there they were seeing the dazzling sight of Jesus' glory. Moments later they were in the middle of one mighty barney rubble of a squabble. That said, it wasn't an argument that they had to break up. Verse 15 as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Picture it in your mind's eye. A group of people having a right old argy-bargy, tempers flying, fists shaking, voices raised. Then someone in the crowd catches a glimpse of Jesus and they're off. And no sooner as one person left the arguing crowd than everyone's charging over to meet Jesus. Jesus had that kind of impact. By this point in his ministry, he was uh, famous for his mighty miracles and his extraordinarily wise words. And so everyone wanted to meet him. And this arguing crowd were no different. They were as starstruck as any crowd today that suddenly catches a glimpse of a celebrity. And so they ran towards Jesus and the dispute ended. Or at least it would have 
had Jesus not asked them, verse 16, what are you arguing about? And a man in the crowd explained, verse 17, Teacher, I bought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Now, let's just slow down at this point and dwell on this situation. When we think about this situation, first note, it is very personal. This man's son is ill, has been for many years. In verse 21, the man says that his son has suffered like this from childhood. Presumably then, by now, what is he, a teenager, something like that? This then is very personal, the suffering of your own child. Some of you have been through it, you know what it's like. Other of us can imagine it. It was heartbreaking. Verse 18, this boy can't speak. He has terrible seizures. How distressing to see your boy, verse 18, foaming at the mouth, gnashing his teeth and becoming as stiff as a board. And in a few moments' time, we'll see that every seizure was life-threatening. This situation is, is about personal suffering. But it's also, when we look at the text, about evil. Uh, be sure this was not just a medical condition. What does it sound like? I mean, look, we're, we've got loads of medics here. What does it sound like? Epi epilepsy, a, a brain tumour? I'll let you medics um, make the diagnosis. Except don't bother. Don't make the diagnosis because behind these convulsions and seizure was an evil force, an evil spirit, we're told in verse 17. See, whatever you think about the dark side, you need to know that demonic evil activity in the world is taken as a self-evident reality in the Bible. This is not to say that everyone is personally possessed by an evil spirit, and I'm certainly not suggesting that anyone who suffers from seizures is demon-possessed. To make that link would be entirely inappropriate and unbiblical, not to say very insensitive. The Bible does tell us about demon possession, and it does still happen today, but the Bible doesn't suggest that for one minute, that epileptics or those who suffer seizures and demon possession are demon-possessed, even though this boy was. But what the Bible does teach us is that we are all caught up in a spiritual battle that is raging throughout this world. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us plainly that our struggle in this world is not against flesh and blood. It's not just against regular human beings, but against rulers, authorities, powers, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, we can't see it, but there is a mighty spiritual power at work all around us, and it is way beyond us. And that explains, at least in part, why we see such horrific things done by wicked people. Behind the, the monstrous actions that we hear about on the news, dark forces of pure evil are at work. Just think about one headline from the news this week. The conviction of Reynard Sinanger, convicted for the rape and sexual assault of 48 men, labelled the UK's most prolific rapist ever. He's believed to have assaulted around 200 victims in the space of seven years. Think of another. In a Japanese court this week, a man admitted to killing 19 disabled people at a care home near Tokyo. What possesses people to do such wicked acts? Answer? Well, there is the wickedness of the human heart, but 
The bigger answer is evil forces in the heavenly realms. And they are at work throughout society and behind the grotesque actions of, of wicked dictators and governments and self-serving corporations. See, behind everything going on in this world, if we, could, if we could pull back the curtain and see what's happening in the spiritual realm, in the, the heavenlies, as the Bible talks about it, and indeed the Bible does that, it does draw back the curtain, and if we could see it, we would see that behind everything going on in this world is a dark and sinister evil. It's all around us, and it is hell-bent on bringing about destruction and death. And in this one situation, we are presented with a very personal picture of a global problem. This little boy's life was ruined by the mighty power of an evil spirit. It robbed him of speech, threw him to the ground. And in verse 22, we see that its ultimate goal is death. In this very personal suffering, we have then an illustration, a picture, if you will, of the entire human struggle in this fallen world. Our whole lives, everything in this world is hampered by a struggle against evil and ruined by suffering and personal pain and anguish. And here's the big thing in all of this. Living in a world where there is a powerful and overwhelming evil force at work will leave us feeling utterly helpless. Look at the telling remark at the end of verse 18. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. That's what caused the dispute. That's our world. Human beings confronted by things that are too powerful for us, things that, that overwhelm us, and then being utterly frustrated by it all, being able to overcome. We cannot deal with it. Here's this desperate father, brought his boy to be healed, but with Jesus up the mountain, the disciples had tried to exercise the boy and had failed. And their inability to deliver the boy had caused an argument. I guess they'd started the, the blame game. Why can't you do it? It's your fault. And Jesus said, verse 19, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And that takes us from the first point, the situation, to the second point, the problem, disabled by unbelief. And the problem is stated very clearly in verse 19. You see, it is unbelief. Oh, unbelieving generation, said Jesus. He's talking to his disciples. At this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem and the cross. He's not going to be around forever, verse 19. How long shall I stay with you? Answer, not very long now. He's going to the cross, and despite all his careful teaching and instruction, his disciples still aren't believing they're still not really trusting Jesus. In one way or another, they were trying to solve this problem on their own. We're talking about disciples here, by the way. Do hang on to that. See, they may have woken up in the morning thinking they could take on the world. What they needed to do was to trust Jesus. See, as readers, we've been shown who Jesus is. Remember last week... Um, up the mountain, uh, the voice from heaven came and uh, what did it say? Verse 7, it was the voice of the Father, God the Father, of course. Verse 7, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. See, we've been given a glimpse of that. Jesus is the son of God. And remember what the disciples saw while they were up the mountain. Jesus transfigured, transformed, physically changed, dazzling white, showing his glory. 
But despite the disciples having been with Jesus for so long now, they still didn't get it. And when confronted by the power of evil, they didn't turn to Jesus. They didn't trust him. Verse 19, they were unbelieving. They were faithless. They thought they could do it on their own. That's the problem. And so we come to the solution over the page on the handout if you're still following along. The solution restored by glory and helplessness. First, uh, we've got to see God's glory. Note that um, we don't need to see God's glory by going back up the mountain, but by experience, not by experiencing another amazing spiritual moment. I mean, those are great, but that's not the answer here. We need to trust Jesus in this messy world by turning to him, relying on him, seeing that he is more powerful than anything else or anyone else in the entire universe. And so uh, in these verses, we will see in the messy world, Jesus' glorious power. See, at the end of verse 19, Jesus said, bring the boy to me. And so verse 20, they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. There we see, now we see the full horror of the boy's condition. The poor boy didn't just suffer seizures. That would be quite distressing enough, but it was much worse. The evil spirit repeatedly tried to kill the boy by throwing him into the fire or drowning him in water. What a thing for a parent to have to deal with. Just, uh, not just putting up a fire guard in the living room so your little one doesn't burn himself, but having to restrain him from throwing himself into the fire. Not just keeping an eye on him when you were relaxing by the swimming pool, but fearing that he would deliberately throw himself into the water at the very moment he was having a seizure. That's the nature of evil. It always wants to kill and destroy. That is what is going on in the dark realms that surround us. No wonder Dad was beside himself and desperate for help, verse 22. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus did help, verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit, you deaf and mute spirit. He said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. Do you see the mighty and glorious power of Jesus? What the disciples were unable to do, Jesus did with just a word. With just a word, the boy was delivered. That's all it took, a word from Jesus. And the boy who'd been afflicted with, evil, with an evil spirit for years was now free, delivered forever. Do you see end of verse 25? Never end him again. Through all his years, his dad couldn't deliver him. Then Jesus' disciples couldn't deliver him. And the teachers of the law were there too, verse 14. They had no answers. They couldn't deliver him. But Jesus just says a word and the spirit is cast out. Do you see the glory of Jesus? Yes, we've seen his glory up the Mount of Transfiguration. Now we see his glory in this messy, broken and evil world. Here is Jesus confronted by powerful evil. Evil that is too 
strong for any human being. Evil that wants to kill and destroy. Evil that ruins life and brings misery wherever it goes. But it is no match for Jesus Christ. Confronted by the powerful spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, Jesus shows us his glory, his power, his compassion, his mercy. And as I've already said, crucially, it's a glory experience, not just on the spiritual mountaintops, but in the everyday struggles of life. See just how awesome it is. It's the glory of resurrection power. Look again at verse 26. The spirit shrieked, convulsing violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. It's meant to remind us of the incident back in Mark chapter 5. Now, it might have been a while since you've read Mark's gospel, but do you remember it? When the little girl had died... And Jesus, do you remember how it goes? Took her by the hand and raised her from the dead. It's exactly the same here. End of verse 26. The lad looked like a corpse. But verse 27, Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up. Confronted by the wickedness in the evil, that is what we need. The power of resurrection. The boy didn't need to learn self-restraint. It would have been utterly useless to tell him to sit still. He just needed to be told a few things. He was overwhelmed by evil. He needed this power. That is precisely what we face in this broken world, in this evil world, that it, that it is so ingrained in the world, so powerful. We need nothing short of the mighty power of the one who can raise the dead. Don't think anything else is going to solve the problems in this world. Now, of course, this all points to the full and final solution that all Christians long for, that one day Jesus will return to defeat evil and bring us resurrection life in the glorious new creation. That day is the only time and place that we will ultimately and utterly experience new life in all its fullness. We have to wait for that day for this final experience, full experience. But this also tells us what we need now as we walk through this shattered experience and existence we need to look to the mighty and glorious resurrection power of Jesus but to do that and I think this is the key point this morning we not only need to see the glory of Jesus but secondly we need to see our helplessness our utter helplessness see that is where the disciples went wrong and note it was the disciples who got this wrong Look at verse 28. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Now we see the problem. The disciples failed to pray. I'd already sort of given you a hint of that along the way. They thought they could deal with evil in their own strength. They woke up that morning thinking they could take on the world. The one person who got it right here is the boy's dad. See, he was under no illusions. Look back to verse 17. Teacher, I brought my son to you. I can't deal with this anymore. End of verse 21. From childhood, this evil spirit has thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us. Of course, Jesus replied, if you can. Of course I can. 
And we've already seen that Jesus can. And so look what Jesus said next, verse 23. Everything is possible for him who believes. All you need to do is believe. Precisely what the disciples were not doing, verse 19. Oh, unbelieving generation. You've got to believe in Jesus. Trust Jesus. That's what we need to do. Living in a world full of evil, we need to know how glorious Jesus is and then trust him. Now, there'll be some here who've never done that. You've never put your, your life in Jesus' hands. See how glorious Jesus is. See how helpless you are in the face of evil in the world. Why not trust him today? And if you're not ready to trust him, why not go on the encounters course? But as I've tried to keep saying right through, this is not just for the person who's never started with Jesus. I don't want the majority of us who, who, who have started with Jesus to switch off and say, oh yeah, it's a, it's a call to become a Christian. Of course it is that, but it's more than that. This is for the majority of us here. This is for those of us who've begun with Jesus, maybe begun years ago, for me, you know, 30 years ago. We, we need to trust him too because we're failing to do that in so many times, in so many situations. But the reason we don't trust him as we should is because we don't feel helpless. I hate feeling helpless. I, I want to wake up in the morning thinking I can take on the world. But when I think that way, that's what I do, single-handedly, take on the world. I think I can do it myself. This boy's father felt utterly helpless. So he said, verse 24, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And the boy was healed. Here's the issue before us who are believers. Do we see how desperate the situation is? Do we feel the powerful forces of evil in this world? I don't mean, you know, do you, do you feel it sort of in some sort of physical way? But I mean, do we really appreciate that it's all too big for us? all too overwhelming, that we cannot deal with it. And do we see how glorious Jesus is, really? That he and he alone can defeat death and the devil? Do we see the glory of Jesus and our utter helplessness? Look, as we draw to a close, when we're faced with the, the magnitude of life's issues, I reckon there are three ways we can respond. I've put them on the handout. There they are. You see that we're nearly at the end. The first is with, is with busyness. Let's see if this connects with you. You, know, you. you see the problems in the world and um, your response is to kind of redouble your efforts, work hard, try and solve the problems. I might call it the, the, the response of the activist. I'm not using that word in a political sense, but rather as someone who runs around trying to find a solution. Look, that's me. If you know me, that's generally me. I usually think I can solve the problem. I, I see a problem, I try to solve it, I work harder, I devise strategies, I work out solutions. The thing about us activists is that it's often, often our busyness does solve problems. I mean, small problems, relatively small problems, but... A, Unless we realize that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, unless we realize that 
on our own, we are utterly helpless and no amount of hard work will solve the problem. Unless we begin to realize that, then all our activism, all our running around, is eventually going to leave us frustrated. And if it's in our nature, get angry and begin to blame people. Busyness is one response. Another, another response is hopelessness. See, when we realize just how overwhelming this evil world is and we can't solve the problem, we'll feel hopeless and give up. We, uh, in the process, might become cynical, resigning ourselves to the fact that nothing's going to change and that we just have to live with it. We become quite unpleasant to be around as well, actually, when we're like that. Or worse than all of that, we might be so weighed down by this world that in our utter hopelessness, we, we give up altogether. And desperately, that is happening more and more, and especially amongst young men. So you see, overwhelmed by the world, um, what is it, busyness, we try to solve the problem, hopelessness, we just give up. Or there is another way. I've called it prayerfulness. I, I could have called it trustfulness. It's kind of the same thing. I've called it prayerfulness because that's what we see or a lack of in this Bible passage. Prayerfulness, trustfulness, um, they're kind of the same because prayer is perhaps the greatest expression of trusting Jesus. There are other ways to trust Jesus, but perhaps prayer is the greatest one. And that's why the disciples failed to pray because they try, failed to trust Jesus. They, verse 19, didn't believe. They didn't trust Jesus. Verse 29, they didn't pray. They, they tried to deal with it themselves. See, our prayer lives are probably the best indicator of where we're at on this. The evangelist Roger Carswell writes, prayerlessness declares that we feel we can cope without our heavenly father. When we don't pray, we feel we can cope without him. It, that's it, isn't it? I don't even have to wake up in the morning and feel that I can take on the world. All that I need to do is wake up in the morning and think that I can get through today and then I don't pray, or at least I don't pray in a heartfelt and dependent way. But I can get through today. I have a set of prayers that I often turn to in my daily prayer time. One of them goes like this. Help me to pour out my heart to you when I'm distressed, stressed, disappointed, hurt, or depressed, and to find your compassion and comfort in times of trouble. I need to keep praying that prayer because I'm an activist. And when I'm distressed, stressed, disappointed, hurt, or depressed, what I do is pick myself up and dust myself down and redouble my efforts. I can do this. Oh, that the first thing I would do in any time of difficulty would be to turn to God in prayer, heartfelt. Here I am, and I guess many of you are the same. Here we are struggling through this broken world and yet rarely laying out our situation before God in, a, in, a, in prayer in a way that, that really just stems from desperateness. Rarely praying as if our lives depended on it. Either because we don't see how strong the enemy is around us and therefore we think the issue is not that bad 
or we don't see how weak we are and we think we can solve the problem, or because we don't see how glorious Jesus is and that he's the solution. May we wake up each morning feeling small and vulnerable, not so that it leaves us paralyzed, but so that we'll come to our Heavenly Father in utter dependence, and then with the mighty power and strength of the resurrection, take on the world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to acknowledge that uh, so often we don't come to you in prayer. We don't want it to feel like a guilt trip this morning for that. But rather we pray that we would be motivated, inspired indeed, by all that we've seen this morning. To be those who, who see the situation as it really is, the mighty power of evil, and how small we are, but how big you are. And we pray that then our lives would be lives which are not just even punctuated by prayer, but soaked in prayer, soaked in dependence and reliance upon you. And then as we do that, to wonderfully see you powerfully at work with resurrection power in the messiness of life, day by day. Amen.